For me to work in a library is probably more appropriate than me working in a traditional art gallery. So I'm obsessed with libraries. I spend as much time in them as I can get away with. There's an inquisitiveness that's at the root of both an art practice and a library and archival practice that just, it makes sense. The artist would be drawn to things that you don't typically think of as being valuable or being of interest. This is Library Bytegeist, a collection of audio stories from the libraries, archives, and museums of New York City. I'm Molly Schwartz, and this podcast is brought to you by the Metropolitan New York Library Council, where the libraries and archives of New York come together to learn, share ideas, and collaborate. When Lillian Schwartz started working on the ground floor of Bell Labs in 1968, she had to request that they install a woman's bathroom. The only women's room in Bell Labs at that time was next to the typist pool. But Lillian Schwartz was not a typist. She was at Bell Labs to do research. Tucked away in Murray Hill, New Jersey, Bell Labs was the pure research arm of AT&T. It was a secretive center of innovation where scientists were developing technologies like the laser, the Unix operating system, the transistor, and computer programming languages like C and C++. The lab garnered eight Nobel Prizes over the years. But even though Lillian Schwartz was at Bell Labs to take part in this cutting-edge research, she wasn't exactly a scientist either. She was there to make art. She was an artist-in-residence at Bell Labs for just over 30 years, from the late 1960s until basically 2000. This is Jer Thorpe, the founder of the Office for Creative Research and an educator at NYU's ITP program. The artwork that Jarethorpe has created with data is both beautiful and mind-blowing. He has a way of using forms and color to display complex concepts, like the size and heat of 2,300 exoplanets. Jer's work is a fluid blend of art and science, just like Lillian Schwartz's computer art was. Jer sees Lillian Schwartz's role at Bell Labs as being particularly helpful precisely because she was approaching the technology as an artist. She would ask questions that they wouldn't normally think about. Not only that, she would use her, their technology in ways they would have never conceived to use. And so it's a functional role. Jer knows a thing or two about residencies himself. I've done residencies at art galleries. I've done residencies at art schools. I did a residency at the New York Times. I did a residency at the Goatsman Library at Columbia University. I did a residency on an oceanographic expedition. He has seen firsthand the ways that artist residencies can benefit both the artist and the institution hosting the artist. So when Jer was invited to take part in a brainstorming session about the future of libraries, it gave him an idea. I felt like total fish out of water. It was like 98 librarians and archivists. I met a lot of really incredible people. I didn't even know that there was an archivist of the United States. And I was like, you're the archivist. I have his his business card that I kept, you know. It's like the best business card I've ever seen. It says the archivist. It's like, wow, wow. They were talking about the future of education in this field. And it was like, can we bake in this idea that running artist residencies in libraries and archives can be a really fruitful thing. Not one to be satisfied with brainstorming ideas and not taking action, Jer wrote an article and posted it on Medium. Its title is An Artist in Every Library. And throughout the article, Jer outlines concrete steps to do just that. Put an artist in every library by establishing a large-scale sweep of paid artist residencies in libraries across the United States and Canada. So I said, hey, here's something really easy we could do. We could, we could just very quickly get a whole bunch of residencies going in libraries. And so I wrote that post on the train on my way home from Boston. Jay wrote this post back in January of 2015. When I read it, I thought it made a lot of sense. And it got me thinking, is it possible to host an artist in every library? And if so, how? 
In search of some answers, I've devoted this episode of Library Bite Guys to the concept of artist residencies in libraries. We'll talk to artists who have worked in libraries and librarians who have hosted artists to see how these partnerships have worked and to see what the future intersection of art and libraries might look like. I know it's both corny and inaccurate, but the automatic image that pops into my head when I think of an artist residency in a library is a painter probably in a smock, maybe with a little beret, uh, because come on, that's what artists look like, right? And this painter is painting on an easel in the midst of bookshelves. But that's nothing like Jenny O'Dell's experience as the Net Artist-in-Residence at the New York Public Library, NYPL. As the title Net Artist implies, Jenny doesn't make art with a paintbrush and an easel. She makes art on the internet. Some of my best-known work involves cutouts from Google Maps satellite imagery, so 125 swimming pools all cut out and arranged, or parking lots or basketball courts. Jenny was hosted specifically by NYPL Labs within NYPL. NYPL Labs itself is a hub for creativity and experimentation. Ben Verschbau was the director of NYPL Labs when Jenny did her residency there in 2014. He wanted to host a net artist-in-residence because at that time, the Maps division at NYPL was putting a whole lot of images on the internet under a public domain license, meaning they were open for reuse and remixing. So in 2014, the library made an open access release of over 20,000 digitized maps and atlases. They were in the public domain, but removed all kind of licensing restrictions on the digital assets and said, you know, we're putting these out there for unlimited reuse, uh, no permission required, any use, commercial, non-commercial, educational, whatever. We thought that would be a really interesting test bed, kind of a relatively frictionless set of materials to put in front of an artist and say, what, what would you do with this? You know, what, where, where would you go with this? I proposed to just take the maps with the stuff on the periphery of them, like the very old maps that have a guy holding a globe and some mermaids and some kind of upsetting colonial stuff in the in the margins and cut out that stuff. And so it was pretty typical of my work to kind of look where you're not supposed to be looking or like look on the margins of things and find something there. And so to me, this was kind of the equivalent of that. You present someone with a bunch of maps, they're going to probably think of them as maps and and look at them as maps, but there's all this stuff on the outside that I also consider part of the map. This reimagining of NYPL's digital collections was exactly what Ben Verschbau was hoping to see emerge out of an artist's residency. It just felt like a great pairing, just because I think the work she does with satellite imagery and making this ubiquitous way of seeing that we've all become very accustomed to through you know, navigation devices and maps, drawing attention to that and making that familiar very unfamiliar, and also just the kind of wonderful obsessive intensity of the stitching and the collaging and the, the construction she makes was, is really exciting. It's kind of a new creative literacy around maps, so applying that to historical maps and historical material just felt so perfect. It's a good strategy for publicizing and celebrating and emphasizing the value of the collections and the assets and of the act of digitization as a kind of a cultural act, as a way of disseminating and extending the reach of these materials. NYPL is just one among many institutions, like MoMA and Cooper Hewitt, that have made their materials available online under a public domain license. You can go on your computer right now and access these digital collections and view them and download them at any time from anywhere where you have access to the internet. You can be in your pajamas in bed at 2 a.m. and be looking at NYPL's maps. The big question becomes, if you build it, will they come? If you open your collections, will people use them? And will people really see all the possibilities of what you can do with things when it's open under a public domain license? That's where Ben sees the real benefit of pulling an artist into the equation. Artists can show people some of the possibilities for what can be done with all of these free digital objects. 
pushing the boundaries of creativity beyond what many librarians who are surrounded by these objects every day would think of. Jenny lives and works in California, so since she was working with digitized maps, she was able to conduct her residency remotely, rather than on-site at NYPL. The main duration of the residency was fairly out in the ether. You know, Jenny was doing her work industriously over in San Francisco. So it was a special moment when Jenny came to NYPL for the first time at the end of her residency. She got to see her work on display in the maps room. Digital met physical, West Coast met East Coast, art met libraries. Just having that dialogue happening in that environment, all these historical and cartographic resources, it, it felt good. It felt like new shoots springing up out of, the, out of the earth. So that was a really nice moment, and there was a nice turnout, and it was a great talk, and then there was the art on the electric objects prototype screen nestled in alongside atlases and globes, and sort of it felt just like that, that spectrum of possibilities uh, arising from the collection was extending. Jenny's artist residency with NYPL was pretty easy to facilitate. She's a digital artist, so she could create art using her computer and the internet. But what I wanted to know was what happens when you try to move more messy or large-scale arts into libraries, like big installations or painters with the easels that I pictured in my head. In search of some examples of how this has worked, I went to visit Steve Keen at his studio in Williamsburg. It was a gray and rainy day, but I knew I was at the right place when I saw a row of giant, colorful pictures of tulips stuck onto the outside of a giant warehouse door. Their bright pinks and yellows and oranges greeted me through the gray mist. Steve Keen is a painter, and he paints a lot of paintings. He estimates that he has sold or given away about 300,000 paintings in his 25 years as a professional artist, producing anywhere between 20 and 80 paintings in a day. When I walked into his studio, all I could see stretching back was stacks and stacks of wooden canvases covered in forms and bright colors. He also had this cute dog who wouldn't rest easy without getting in on the podcast action. What can I do about the dog? I need to, maybe I can bring him up here. Yeah, it's totally fine. Okay. Steve was Brooklyn Public Library's artist-in-residence in the summer of 2014. But it turns out he didn't paint inside the library. He painted outside. Every day throughout the summer, from June through August, Steve would set up his easel and paints in the square outside the main branch of Brooklyn Public Library in Grand Army Plaza. And he painted there, outside, in the heat, from 11 in the morning to 5 at night. I'd get there a couple hours before I needed to start painting to set up. You know, putting down the tarps, getting my equipment, mixing my paint, getting everything in order. Once you're painting, it's work, so you have to be organized if you're going to get your job done that day. I think I did, okay, 48 paintings a day. It is pretty crazy. You're painting outside in the blinding heat in the summertime. You're basically like a street artist out there, and people can choose to look. Or we're also in New York City where just for self-preservation, you try not to look at very much because you get so exhausted. But a lot of people enjoyed it. Painting outside in a public square, of course, had its challenges, but it also shaped his work in interesting ways. You feed off the energy or lack of energy from the people. Downtown Library is just an incredible building. Maybe it's just like a Brooklyn thing. You'd think it'd be more famous. And I just, I love the fact that the library was so big and so busy. It was filled with people coming and going. It felt very festive. This connection to the energy of the public was a major draw for Steve during his residency at BPL. Steve also liked the fact that by painting at the library, he was forcing people to encounter art in a strange place where they don't normally see it. Art is a strange thing. People don't really incorporate it as much in your daily life. I mean, that's kind of what I think about all the time. I've shown my work in museums, but I've also sold work in bars and 
yard sales. Sometimes it's just fun to put art where you don't expect to see it. That liveliness and energy that Steve felt painting outside at BPL is one of the unique things that artists get from working at libraries. It's an opportunity to work in a public space. We are the only place in town where you can just wander in and see kind of an artist studio and artists working over an extended period of time. This is Trent Miller. He works at Madison Public Library in Wisconsin in their arts incubator called The Bubbler. The Bubbler is a lively, interactive library space. It's equipped with a screen printer, a media lab, audio recording studio, and many other things. This equipment gets put to good use, partly through their artist-in-residence program. The Bubbler has been continuously hosting artists for two-month residencies for almost four years. According to Trent, the fact that the Bubbler is located within the public library has made it a hub for community arts projects. We have the public coming through all the time. So I think for those artists wanting to do projects that interact with the community in a way, we're just like a really nice hub to make that connection. The other part of that is what does the library get out of having these artists in? I think what it gets is a sense of things happening. The room that the artists work in is not stale. It's always rotating. It's always changing. And so the whole library just continually gets transformed. Trent has seen how the artist residency program at the Bubbler has given birth to relationships that have proven mutually fruitful for both the library and the artists. The artists get inspiration from the materials in the library, and they have opportunities to do projects together with the community. They also get exposure by creating art in a public space. And the library gets fresh inspiration and ideas from the ways that artists come in and transform the space. The ideas and the programs and the projects that come out of this are things I never would have thought to do. I mean, in the end, that's the best thing. Um, for example, we had one artist who was doing sewing, and she saw a lot of people maybe connected to the homeless population, and she started talking to someone who does kind of outreach to that population, and she said, hey, can we come set up and actually do free mending and sewing in your library? And so now that happens in the library because that artist said, could this be something I could offer to the community? And those sessions are just full up every couple weeks. Laura Damon-Moore is a librarian with Trent at the Madison Public Library. She also has witnessed how bringing arts into the library has given people who come through the library an opportunity to tap into their creative side. A key role that the library can play in sparking that creativity is just granting permission. If you haven't identified yourself as an artist, or if you don't spend a lot of time on artistic or creative practice, it's nice to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to go to the library and I'm going to participate in this workshop, or I'm going to check out, you know, cartooning books. The library is granting you permission, and you're also sort of granting yourself permission to be creative in that space. Laura sees the library as a public institution that has the unique ability to provide democratic, equitable access to creative pursuits. That's what inspired her to co-found the Libraries Incubator Project, which showcases the ways that libraries act as creative hubs for the arts. You can find in-depth stories and reports at libraryasincubatorproject.org. Also, for any of you attending the American Library Association conference this summer in Chicago, the Libraries Incubator Project is hosting a panel there that you should check out. So with all of the benefits that have clearly come out of the artist residencies at NYPL, at BPL, and at Madison Public Library, let's get back to Jer's initial idea. Can we put an artist in every library? And should we? 
Even though Jer feels that artists and libraries are a perfect fit, it feels like a really magic match. He also recognizes that one of the major barriers to making these residencies happen is lack of resources. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to where the funding comes from. How do the artists who come and do these residencies get paid? Everyone who I've talked to about this has recognized the importance of artists getting paid for their work. I mean, you definitely want to pay the artist or the artist group. This is not just like free labor. It's not like, oh, great, we got a creative hang around so we can get all our posters made. That's not what it's about. You got to pay a living wage, at least for a residency, because if you don't, you're self-selecting the type of artist you're going to get. But even though everyone I talked to agreed that it was an absolute necessity that the artists get paid, I noticed that they had different ideas about what a reasonable stipend should be. Jared Thorpe is a practicing artist. He knows what it means to make a living doing creative work in New York City. I just had a meeting with somebody who was talking about their residency program, which was so, which is a cool residency program. And at the end, they were like, and we give our artists $1,600 a month to live in New York. And I was like, what? That's like below a living wage for libraries and archives who are considering doing residencies. At the very least, just think about this as a living wage situation. And I don't want to say that you're not going to get value out of that, but certainly a single mother who's an artist is not going to be able to do a residency if you're not going to be able to pay her living expenses. But while Jer makes the very valid point that it's difficult to live in New York City on $1,600 per month, I looked up the stipends of some of the other residencies. The artist residency at NYPL paid $500 for a one-month residency, in addition to a developer kit from Electronic Objects, which is valued at $400. The residency at the Public Library in Madison, Wisconsin, pays a stipend of $800 a month. Granted, Madison, Wisconsin is about half as expensive to live in as New York City, but that still makes the stipend equivalent to the $1,600 stipend that Jer found unreasonable. So what's a reasonable stipend, and who's going to pay it? The artist residency program in Madison is thriving, and all parties involved at NYPL and BPL seem really happy with how it worked out. Artists like Steve Keen and Jenny O'Dell had the opportunity to continue selling their work and teaching on the side during their residencies, so the library's stipend was really just a supplement. For Steve Keen, it was never really about the money. When I asked him if he was compensated for his work at BPL, he practically dismissed the question. You know, I got money for teaching some kids' classes on Saturdays, I think they gave me some money for materials. I honestly can't remember. Because, I mean, I sold my work there. I sold some of my work there. You know, everybody needs to make money, but you don't, you don't make art because you want to make money. You make art because it's a way for you to be able to express yourself or say something that you can't any other way. And it's an incredible treat if people give over some of their space for you to be able to say your thing, you know. The way I talk is through different colors and lines. Funding for libraries, and especially public libraries, is pretty tight. Many of the artist residencies that we covered in this podcast were funded at least in part by individual grants or partnerships. Laura Damon Moore emphasizes that straightforward communication is key when setting up these residencies. That's the only way to make sure that the situation is workable and appropriate for both sides. But she also recognizes that negotiating contracts and money can be awkward. It always gets awkward when you're like, so what's your rate? And I think luckily people that I've run into are always very honest, but they tend to be flexible and like, here's what I normally would charge. I think that piece is really important for librarians to be aware of. I'm bringing in someone, an expert, to speak on a specific topic or to do an interactive workshop. I want to know what their going rate is so that 
I understand that I am not presenting them with something that's woefully underappreciative of their experience and their work. I think also on the artist side, there also should be the understanding that libraries can't necessarily pay as much as a gallery space or traditional art museum or, or something like that, and that the mission is a little bit different. So back to that democratic access to arts and ideas and creativity. Laura has seen many libraries make artist residencies work, but she also recognizes that such programs might remain outside the reach for some smaller libraries, like the one she was working at when she first read Jer's post on Medium calling for an artist in every library. I was working as the children's librarian, the youth services librarian for a very small town library in rural Wisconsin, so outside of Madison, and with my incubator hat on this is great, this sounds amazing. We talk about this constantly, every week, all the time. Yes, 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 get artists in. With my little small town library hat on, I was like, how, 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 how? So basically, if we want to think seriously about putting an artist in every library, or at least putting more artists in more libraries, or even continuing some of the artist residencies that have been ongoing in the past, we're going to have to seriously rethink the ways that we fund them. Some of the funding agencies that have funded this kind of thing in the past, like the Institute of Museum and Library Services, IMLS, or the National Endowment for the Arts, NEA, are facing some pretty big potential budget cuts. But if we can make it happen, who knows? Putting artists in libraries might be like sitting Sir Isaac Newton under an apple tree. Some pretty awesome discoveries could await. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Library Bytegeist. As always, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also have some exciting news. For those of you who have been listening to us since the beginning, you'll probably remember that I'm here doing this podcast as a Metro Fellow, and that fellowship only lasts nine months. That means at the end of May, I'm done. But the exciting thing is that I'm actually going to be staying on at Metro as the studio manager which also means that Library Bytegeist lives on, which is awesome because there are so many more stories about libraries and archives that I still think should be told. And on that note, since Library Bytegeist now will be continuing on until, who knows, maybe forever, I encourage you, if you have stories that you think we should cover here at Library Bytegeist, to reach out and let us know. You can find us on Twitter at LibBytegeist, or you can email me, Molly Schwartz, at mschwartz at metro.org. Thanks so much to all you library listeners out there. Until next time.